This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare uh, Health Information Technology plus Clinical Leadership and Pharmacy Virtual Conference. I'm here today for our keynote interview with Mitch Parker. Mitch Parker is an incredibly intelligent and principled individual who currently serves at Indiana University Health System, a true leader. I'm going to ask Mitch to introduce himself, then we're going to talk about a whole range of health IT and clinical issues uh, that, are, that are just current today. Mitch, can you take a moment and introduce yourself, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. So as Scott said, my name is Mitch Parker. I'm the Information Security Officer at Indiana University Health. <clears throat> I'm also an adjunct lecturer at IUPUI in health informatics, <clears throat> where I do a lot of pre-standards work with IEEE and standards development. A big area of focus I have is making sure that the security we have in place <clears throat> is correct and appropriate and that we work to maximize what we can use in the clinical environment without impeding our clinicians, but at the same time, looking at new and different ways that we can improve security and innovating in that realm. And, and, and Mitch, let me ask you a starting question. Information security and, and cyber attacks and cybersecurity have been such a big issue the last couple of years, even prior to COVID-19. What's the state of sort of information security and information in the context of COVID-19? Are the security troubles exponentially more challenging, or what's your sense of what's going on? I think you, what you're looking at here is a confluence of several different factors. And the first factor you have to take a look at, which is most critical, is we took a very large portion of the American workforce that was used to working in offices and we relocated them to working remotely in a very short period of time. And in a lot of cases, yes, a lot of companies did take shortcuts. A lot of them did have issues with capacity. And more importantly, a lot of our cloud service providers also had issues with capacity. So one example I like to cite is Microsoft talked about having a 775% increase with the use of Microsoft Teams. And number two, Zoom had a corresponding increase of several thousand percent. I believe it was about 3,000% on their side. Secondly, you had the relaxation of the telehealth rules. And what happened with that is that you had a lot more options for telehealth, but at the same time, you had a lot of providers that needed to see their patients. So a significant amount of doctor's appointments and specialist appointments were relocated to telemedicine very quickly, which was a stress on both patients and our providers. A lot of them had to get used to using a platform they hadn't used before. And I've heard statistics in the thousands of percent from some health systems to where they had to scale up. And some of the telehealth providers themselves that were also based on cloud technologies were, they did not, they had some scalability issues as well. And the third part is, is rolling out a completely new infrastructure to support COVID as well. So when you take a look at it, you had a lot of facilities, a lot of people that got stood up very, very quickly. So every, piece of available space a hospital had was turned into space to take care of patients. And the most extreme example I can think of, Temple University Health System, where I used to work, 
turned the Boyer Pavilion, which is normally outpatient offices with very limited inpatient space, into a 270-bed COVID hospital in a very short period of time. So while Temple's an extreme, you have that same action playing across. So a combination of everyone's working from home, you have a combination of having to relocate a large amount of appointments, appointments for telehealth, and the third part, relocating and, re and reallocating your inpatient space to take care of COVID patients has been a significant stressor on any IT organization. And it's shown that a lot of IT organizations, a lot of organizations have been very resilient. They've done incredible work and there's nothing more I can really say about that. These people have done, gone far above and beyond. But it's really an amazing challenge that the uh, American workforce, the American healthcare workforce, and the health IT teams have worked through. I mean, I mean truly an amazing challenge in, in a really truncated period of time. Uh, so hats off to the workforce and the health IT workforce and frontline workers. Take a moment and tell us, in this great transition, and a lot of it's been well publicized. Like Zoom went from 10 million users, 200 million users, almost overnight, and had some challenges, of course, uh, security challenges. But but talk to us a little bit about what's working. What's been working in this transition? I think that people didn't realize how well the EMR systems supported them in these in this. I think a lot of people thought there were going to be issues because of EMR capacity, and that wasn't the case. I think a lot of people didn't think that their infrastructures could support so much remote access. And what we're finding as well, there's been some capacity issues. We found that the vendors have been more than accommodating with making sure the healthcare providers can get access to it. And I think telehealth has shown that it's here to stay because I would have never dreamed healthcare could have pivoted so quickly over to telehealth the way that they did. But I think the thing that's working most of all is the amount of data that we have to analyze and the way we're able to capture it with electronic medical records has been paramount in providing us valuable data and information we can utilize to help combat this. And, and it's really amazing the amount of things that were built the last 10 years, really, last 10, 20 years, really, that have shown to be so important that they were built a little bit of time ago for how useful they are today. And then I'll come back to you on data for a moment. Talk about that, like sort of the preparation that not necessarily for a pandemic, but the fact that these platforms were built left them ready to be used as we've had this situation. So one of the things that I have observed over the past few years is that we've done a lot of work in our field with remote work. For example, billing and coding is a perfect example where you have pe people that do billing and coding. These are specialists. A lot of them work from home. So to be able to get a remote billing or coding specialist to work, you have to replicate enough of the environment for them to be able to log into the EMR and do the, some of the same job the clinician does, plus access to financial system. So I think over the past decade, in order for us to build up, to allow for remote billing and coding and allow for people to work from home on a partial basis, 
we've been able to have the infrastructure in place to have them do that. And I think a second corollary to that has been healthcare's move to the cloud. I think the embracement of the various cloud-based email collaboration platforms has made it very easy for us to be able to relocate and relocate to home because we had already been doing this. Had this happened 10 years ago with the state of video conferencing solutions or teleconferencing solutions back then, I think it would have been a lot worse. But now we have IP phones. We have remote access that works really well because of both clinicians needing to access the EMRs to chart from home and remote billing and coding. And I also think that just the amount we've invested in making EMRs work has had the corollary effect of also allowing remote access to work incredibly well. It's fascinating. And talk for me, to me a moment about data. It seems like no matter who you are, you are overloaded with data. What's the ability to cipher through that data and make sense of it? Because I agree with you, there is data you know, that you can't get enough data and there's so much of it. How do professionals like yourself sift through that data to make sense of us? Because us lay people are trying to do so with, of course, various different biases and thoughts and so forth. And whatever you want to, whatever conclusion you want to come to, you could always come to it based on a data that backs up whatever position you want. How do you, as a professional, discipline yourself to sift through this data and make sense of it? So. I'm going to say something that's going to be a little bit different. You have to make data the focus of your strategy. And I think one of the ways in which Indiana University Health has really excelled, they have a strong team of doing data analysis that has a significant experience in working with customers. And I believe that those team members have done an incredible job in our decision support system team. They do incredible work working with customers to be able to sift through terabytes of data and make it actionable and make it something that can be presented. Because ultimately, when you collect terabytes of data, that's one thing. It's being able to take all of that, present it on one page, and be able to give our senior executives something that's actionable that is the best possible thing you can do. And I look at that as a skill that is of paramount importance. I'd say just as much, if not more than cybersecurity for a modern healthcare system, because you have to be able to take this data and you have to be able to make it work. Well, and that's really right. If you can't make it useful and actionable and, and simple, then it's not really useful. Take a moment, I'm gonna divert you for one second because you mentioned the Indiana University Medical Center and the Indiana University Health System has become over the last decade to two decades just a phenomenal system, both a great academic medical center and also a community system. It's got both, it's got both levers. It's a community health system and a great, and a great academic medical center and it's really become an elite system. Give us a moment on your pride in the Indiana University health system, and then I'll take you back to some other questions we've got for the keynote interview. So I'll tell you, I mean, one of the 
big attractors for me coming to Indiana was the teamwork. People here really appreciate each other as a team. And I can tell you, mission and values in this organization, everything starts with Dennis Murphy and his leadership team. And everything propagates down from them. And I always have a saying for my team, leadership starts from the top. And I'm very happy that in our organization, not only is this true, I hear this from all levels of the organization. And I think if there's anything out there that this has proven, it's that our leadership team is very strong, very focused, and has really focused more on how we can do better as an organization to serve the community than many other places that I've worked. Well, mag magnificent, and, and thank you. And I've noticed it from afar, so I'm impressed by what's happened at Indiana University in the health system, so fantastic. Talking about something totally different, we've talked about what's working. You've talked about remote work environments. You've talked about data. You've talked about telehealth. Uh, so many things have quickly ramped up the EMR. For all the complaints people have had about the EMR over the last decade, all these things seem to have worked really well in this COVID-19 situation. Take me to the flip side of this, uh, Mitch. What's not working? What, what do you see and say that's not working? Not necessarily your system, but just generally, what do you see not working? I think we have a very long way to go in doing a lot of remote monitoring. I think we have to do a lot of work in taking what was once inpatient and moving it to outpatient. And I think we have a lot of infrastructure work that we need to do to be able to better support a very large and distributed health system network. And I really think that we could do a much better job also with the guidance that we give to providers. So I look at the number of providers out there, and I believe according to the American Medical Association, over 60% of them are in practices of 10 or fewer physicians. Not everyone works for a large health system, and we have to do a lot more to enable the smaller doctors and smaller practices to be able to function, because not all of them are gonna be able to do so. We have to remember, these are small businesses. And we want to make sure that a small business is able to function. And the biggest concern I have right now is that over the next few months, I mean, J. Crew just announced bankruptcy today. You're going to see 20 to 25% of the workforce at minimum unemployed. You're going to be seeing significant amount of people out of work. I think that what we can do here is number one, provide better cybersecurity guidance and guidance in general for a lot of our smaller practices. I think we have to do a lot more to ensure that the people who are coming to our facilities come for treatment because I get, I mean, when you have a choice between paying your bills and eating your dinner, you're going to pick food every time. And there's a lot more we can do to provide systematic ways to help people out that really need it because we don't want people that are sick to not go to the doctor because they're afraid of not being able to feed themselves 
And that's something I know our organization has done a lot with. And I think that's a that's the biggest challenge we have right now, just economic economic thought we're gonna be dealing with for several years afterwards. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly scary as can be. Uh, you look at 30 million people filed for unemployment so far, uh, and there's probably a lot more still coming and trying this great balance of reopening the economy and getting things going without everybody getting sick or at least having horrible outcomes. It's a really, really challenging balance to, to flow uh, for the governors, the mayors, the presidents, everybody, a really challenging situation. You've, you've, you've touched on it really, really well. Where do health systems need to get better, uh, whether it's information security-wise, clinical leadership, health IT, or any place? Where do health systems need to get better? I think the best way to do this is for people to really work together. I think what's ended up happening in healthcare, like any other large businesses, you've seen a lot of silos. So, and it's very important that you connect the dots between your various silos of the organization to make sure people understand who they are, what their relationship is, and how quickly they can find each other to work together and collaborate. And I don't look at leadership as looking as having a skill of leading an organization of people that are in a silo. You have to look at it as leading an organization of people together and focusing on collaboration. I think the biggest thing that's going to come out of COVID-19 is going to be a renewed spirit of collaboration between various parts of the healthcare delivery enterprise to find out where can we be more efficient? Where can we better communicate and ultimately keeping the outcomes in mind and keeping them aligned around core principle? That's one reason I appreciate everything Dennis and his leadership team have done as because is because they emphasize keeping the core principles in mind. And I think more health systems are going to do that. And the outcome should be better communication. And, and, and let me ask you a question, sort of building on that and moving forward, talk to us about what does a new normal look like? What does a new normal look like in the next couple of years, the next six months? Any sense of that, or is it too early to tell or too hard to tell what a new normal looks like? I really think that we have to take a look at every day very differently. This isn't something predictable. I, every day I read about how this defies all those fiscal models in the past. We have to focus on how we can not adjust to a new a new normal, but adjust to the changes. And because normal is gone, we're not going to have it. It signifies a return to how things once were, and that's not going to happen anymore. We're going to go someplace else, and we need to prepare for a journey. We need to prepare our teams for a journey, and talk about the changes along the way. So with that, I think the couple of biggest changes we're going to see is number one, telehealth is going to stay. And this shift from health systems having primarily inpatient revenue as opposed to outpatient revenue, that's changing. We're going to see primarily outpatient revenue, in my opinion, over the next few years. I think that a lot of the work for telehealth and remote monitoring that we were waiting for 5G for is getting moved up to now. And I think we have to learn how to adapt 
very quickly and that the lasting effect is going to be health systems are going to be more outpatient focused, more remote focused, and that we have to turn from being leaders that seek to define normal to change leaders because normal's not coming back. We're not going to approach it. And we have to realize that and lead our teams in such a way that they understand that and they're willing to go on the journey with us. It's fascinating. So really the new normal is a normal of lots of change and uncertainty is really getting used to uncertainty and change at a level we've never seen before, really. I mean, things we never would have expected in our lives are happening now, but also a lot more telehealth, remote work, a lot more revenues reliant on outpatients. And there had always been shifts in these things, but never as fast as there is right now. And, and your point that we're not really going to have a new normal. It, it's rather going to be an evolution to figure out what a new normal is, is a fascinating perspective versus because all of us sort of think we've had a normal, it'll be a different normal, but it will be a new normal. And what you're saying is not really. It's really going to be a set of adjustments and evolutions. Uh, and, and at some point we might move into what's a new normal, but not yet. Uh, we, we've adopted, we've changed five years in a matter of three weeks. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, that's really true. And, and let me ask you a follow-up question. How much of your team is working remotely today? How much was working remotely two months ago? And what does that look like two months from now? So right now I have one person in the office. I am, I had two months ago, I had everyone, almost everyone in the office except one person. And I think on an ongoing basis, if I have half my team in the office on a given day, it's going to be a big day. I think that remote work is going, is here to stay. And information security was always different because a lot of really skilled workers have always worked remotely. So I've talked to some of my peers who have teams that are almost completely remote. For example, there's a CISO I know in the Northeast who has analysts sitting in South Carolina. I've had, I have an analyst sitting in Kentucky. And that's just how it is with security. But for other parts of the field, you're going to see a lot less face time. And I think that in several months, if you get half the workforce in on a good day, it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge day. Everyone else is going to be remote because the rituals and events that we normally observe in healthcare, like the team meetings, the big town hall meetings, and the leadership meetings, we have proven they all work very effectively remotely, and some would say more so than the in-person equivalents. And, and let me ask you a question that whose birthday does it have to be to get half the office in for that one day, for that big day? I mean, who, somebody's got to be really well liked for that to be the day that everybody comes in. Pretty much. Right. No, it's a fascinating thing, and I think most people that are in professional white-collar environments are thinking that'll be the, the norm if half the people are in, in a day. That's going to be a lot. I mean, that's really what it's going to look like for some time until people start to figure it out. I mean, are there days where you think we're all working through a game and we really don't know what the game is, meaning we're setting up all these precautionary rules, like 30% of the workers will be in, 20% of the workers will be in, 
all in sort of a game not to catch this thing called COVID-19. But we really don't know. You know, if you look at New York, where antibodies show that maybe 20, 30 percent of you already had it, are we all sort of making up rules as we go along? And we're not really sure if they all make sense or not. And we sort of get the sense we don't want 80,000 people at the stadium for the, um, you know, for the, you know, for the Colts, for the Indianapolis Colts. But, but, but do we, are we really making sense of this? Are we really all going to a spot anyways? Like Angela Merkel says, half of us are going to get this anyways, and it's a matter of the timing of getting it. I think that a lot of people are driven by what happened 102 years ago in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was not a hot spot during the original Spanish flu. However, when they held a parade on Broad Street in Philadelphia, a number of people got infected. And I believe Philadelphia had tens of thousands of people that died from that from that pandemic. And people don't want to repeat what happened in the past. And I think people are also trying to be very, very careful and mindful so that they protect themselves and their loved ones. And that's really important because you can't take the attitude of, hey, if, even if you can get this, it's only fatal this percentage of the time. Well, that's still someone's life. And you want if you don't want to be so cavalier. You want to protect whatever lives you can because that's someone's relative. That's someone's mother, father, brother, sister, child. And you don't want to be callous like that. You want to do whatever it takes to protect the people that need it. And we agree with that 100%. And, and I just wonder of the futility of it in some ways. And I, I've seen the Philadelphia examples versus, quite frankly, the St. Louis examples. And St. Louis took the social distancing way earlier, did far better in the Spanish flu than did Pennsylvania. I, I, what, I, what I'm trying to understand is, you know, it, it does seem like, and it goes back to this data issue, everybody's working through all kinds of different data. And, and if if the data is that it's so contagious that we could do all these things to try and stop it, but at the end of the day, we're really slowing it versus stopping it. It's so contagious. I guess unless you really think there is some kind of vaccine coming or something that comes that allows there to be some new normal again. I, I, and I don't mean to be fatalistic, but it's, it's a fascinating discussion. Because I, I do hear all these new rules, and, it, and it's hard to figure out in the who every day comes out with really differing recommendations. That's not a negative on them. I mean, who, who has recently said face masks of very limited value, yet we've all bet, built, bought into the orthodoxy of we all need face masks. And I'm not arguing it, but it is a fascinating set of, art, of challenges in trying to figure out what is the right policy, isn't it? It is, and the truth is, is that we're dealing with something that despite the in, intensely huge amounts of data that we have does not fit a model. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty because we are dealing with something that we don't even know how it operates. And it is a small, invis nearly invisible enemy that the top minds in the world are working on trying to stop right now. And I think a lot of the measures we're trying to take are to slow it enough 
to where we can hopefully have a vaccine or a treatment in place. Because again, this is going to advance our knowledge of virology several years by the time it's done. Because we will have put so much effort into understanding how this operates. Because this is something like we've never seen before. And, but conversely, we've never had the resources before to develop vaccines at this scale or do the type of research we're doing at this scale. So uh, this is about my belief, making sure that we take care of others so that we can buy enough time to figure out what this is and get the right treatments in place. I mean, and that really is the plan that basically you buy enough time, you figure this out, you flatten the curve, and sooner or later you figure out, does this remdesivir work? Do other drugs work? Are there vaccines? Will the vaccines be effective? And, and sort of hope for the best and put a lot of resources into those things. So I think you've got a great perspective on it, Mitch. Let me ask you a different question, which is always near and dear to the commercial world. Uh, what will health systems be spending on the next couple of years? Will they, or they, will they be spending on nothing except as it relates to COVID-19? Where will, where will money be spent and where won't it be spent? So... I really think that there's going to be a significant rethinking of what health systems spend money on because of the fact that most of them have lost significant amounts of money over the past several months. There's been nothing like it. And what I think is going to happen is I think health systems are going to spend on what they need to do business. And there's going to be a rethinking of priorities starting from the top. And I think that the number one focus is going to be on patient care. And I think there's going to be a bigger focus on how can we more efficiently provide this level of care at a lower cost. And I, it, it, and it, I go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but to that end, like I talked to one system recently, they were doing fine. They cut out elective surgeries. They cut out non-essential surgeries. They're now literally large system losing $100 million a month. And that sort of goes to your premise that systems are going to have to be very careful on spending going forward as they figure out how to sort of rebuild their balance sheets post-COVID-19. Yes. I think that health systems are going to, honestly do a lot better than most publicly traded companies because of one very important factor, days cash on hands. A lot of health systems kept significant days cash on hand reserves and we've just found out that most of the retail world didn't. Well, in the, in the retail world was um, in a challenging spot pre-COVID-19, at least the physical retail world it also had been over leveraged. And so you take this perfect state storm of already a declining retail environment, over leveraged, yeah. too much debt, and you combine that with, um, with um, we've got a, a junior chief information security officer in the background. We'd love to have him join the call. The, uh, but you are in the situation where, um, where, where retail did hit a very tough storm, as did so many businesses. Uh, and that was already one that was decelerating and, and challenged. Health systems have the good news of, I think the whole country views the health systems, is we can't allow them to fail. 
or too many of them to fail because it, it's become clearer ever than ever that we need the capacity, that we need the healthcare capacity. Let me ask you another question of that. With 30 million people unemployed, you know, you, you've had this broad national debate between free market, which is never really a free market, because even in the free market, 50% of people are getting healthcare through Medicare or Medicaid, public option, Medicare for all. It seems inevitable that there's some push towards public option or Medicare for all when you have so many people unemployed. Just because people that are unemployed, either they end up poor enough that they end up Medicaid eligible, or, or two, they end up with real trouble trying to figure out health insurance. What's your sense of the politics of all this, and how does some of that play through? So I really think that as we move towards the end of the year and the effects start happening, and I'm really sad to say this, I think that we, I think that there needs to be a reexamination of our options for health insurance because there's a lot of people that aren't going to be getting it and they're not going to spend the money to get it to pay for it if they if they have to make a choice of say where to live if they have to pay for their rent if they have to pay for their food they're not going to pay for health insurance and I think that it's it's sad. It's unfortunate. I really do not wish this situation on anyone whatsoever. But I think based on what's happening, there, we really need to take a look at how we take care of those that are most vulnerable. Right. And if you're unemployed and you're not eligible for Medicaid and you're not 65, your options become insurance. And if there's not a public option, and, and again, not the politic one or the other, because we try and truly be as apolitical as possible. If there's not a public option, that person's really in bad shape because they're held hostage yeah. to a, a very limited number of insurance options. And, and in most states, it is really truly one uh, lead insurer, dominant insurer, and the pricing on that is brutal. Absolutely. And like I said, if you don't have a job, you're more worried about is your family going to have some place to live next month? Are you going to be able to afford are you going to be able to afford to buy food? That becomes your immediate concerns. And we really, really have to give some thought as to what our options are in each state and we have to find something that works. No, and, that, and that sounds right. So we've talked a lot about there's some things through this COVID-19 that have worked dramatically well. But remote care, telehealth, the EMRs, teams learning to work together, uh, a whole number of things. There's a shift in the care model. There will be more virtual care, more remote care. Uh, we've talked about, at least for a moment, the strength of the IU health system and what an amazing job in transformation they've made over the last decade to two. Uh, it's simply amazing. We've talked about constant security concerns, particularly as you end up with lots of small and mid-sized practices that can't afford to pay the amount they need for good security. I mean, that's a real challenge, too. And so I'll come back to sort of a final question. We've talked about a couple of things that aren't working. Um, and obviously, it's a challenging time, an incredible amount of unemployment, coupled with an ongoing pandemic, 
And obviously throughout the country, very different views on how to handle that. I mean, a, a really polarized situation. There's some people's views on how to handle it. We've also talked about an abundance of data, tremendous data. I'm going to ask you one final question. Sorry for the long lead up, Mitch. Are you optimistic? Are you optimistic about the future of IU Health System, of the country, of, of health care? Are you optimistic? I am optimistic. I'm going to share Warren Buffett's optimism because ultimately, if the United States has proven anything, it has proven that the people are resilient and they will pull through crises. I take a look at America, and I always think about America before World War II, where America was an isolationist country that didn't want anything to do with the rest of the world or its problems that got thrust upon it. And what ended up happening that came out of that was an America that understood its principles and firmly cemented itself as a world leader. And from that, they took the leader that emerged from World War II, that being General White David Eisenhower, and he took a lot of what he did in World War II and those leadership lessons, and he led them as President of the United States for two terms. And I look at it, America went from being a very provincial country, one that was very isolationist, and I'm going to be very blunt in saying this, one that had more in common with Germany than it did with the with the with the allied countries that it joined what came out of it is was an america that had a greatly improved public school system the interstate highway system and one of the greatest sustained periods of economic prosperity that has ever been seen in the modern world i believe that america is poised to make a similar jump i believe that this country has done a lot i believe that we can do it because We've been in worse places in the past, and yet over 240 years after the founding of the United States, we're still here. And granted, the 244th birthday on July 4th in D.C. is going to be a little bit smaller this year, but still, it's going to be one. And I think that we can pull together. I think we need to pull together, and I think we need to look past our prejudices and look past the vitriol and look past the people trying to divide us and come together and help each other out. And I believe if we can do that, and I believe that we will in some way, shape, or form, then I believe we'll be all better off. Mitch, thank you for sharing your time today. Uh, you're inspiring, you're thoughtful, you're intelligent. Just a, a, a tremendous pleasure to visit with you, and, and I love your optimism at the end. My God, we all need a dose of it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mitch. What a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the opportunity.